Thank you, Carl. Hi, everybody. My name is David Hay, and I am an alcoholic. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have not found it necessary to, nor have I taken a drink of an alcoholic nature since April the 20th, 1967, and for this I am so thankful. And first of all, I want to thank your committee for inviting both Miss Grace and myself to be here this weekend for this weekend. And hadn't it been wonderful up to right this second? <laughs> and it's just been absolutely wonderful. The only thing I know about being an alcoholic is how I drank alcohol. When I tell anyone, any place, anywhere, inside of AA or outside of AA, that means that this alcoholic fits every word, every line, every comma, every period, every paragraph, every page in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know no other way to live sober except by the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous. And since April the 20th, 1967, I have not found any reason whatever to leave Alcoholics Anonymous. To find an easier way to live sober, a more sociably acceptable way to live sober, a more fun way to live sober, nor a more exciting way to live sober. Thank God I haven't had to go to one of those action-reaction courses, Concentration Movement Related Disorders Institute. When I got to you people, my wife was a related disorder. Hang in there till your drawers fall off, baby. Sexual dysfunction seminars. Now, I'll tell you, if you get as old as I am and been... Able to say, stay sober only by the grace of a loving God in the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, I do not need a sexual dysfunction seminar. I need a memory course. As our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, what we're like now. It was on the last Sunday in August of 1950. And this last Sunday of this month of this year, it'll be 40 years, 41 years ago. That a group of fine, sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous invited me to come to an open AA meeting at the Suburban Group in Dallas, Texas. The Wednesday before that Sunday, I stumbled into one of Dallas's more affluent barber shops, and I fell in his chair at this manicure's table. Now, I was more at myself that morning. Now, being more at myself in those days meant that I was drinking, I wasn't too drunk, or I could sit in a chair for about ten minutes without falling out of it. I could navigate to and from the men's room and go out and get me another bottle of whiskey. I sat down, and this gal looked at me, and she said, David, and right there and then I should have known something's wrong. She didn't call me doctor. She said, David, I belong to a deal called Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have not had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I looked at Edith, and I said, you're a liar. Nobody stays sober a year, maybe a day, maybe two days, three days at the most, but no, nah, not a year. She said, no, nah, I haven't had a drink in a year. Now, Edith looked like a drunk ought to look like, you know, sort of female-looking James over here, you know. Her face wasn't real pretty. It looked like a truck had run over it and then backed over she had done a good job. She had big bug eyes and gaps in her teeth, and God bless her, her nose had been broken so many times drunk, just sort of leaned on the left side of her face. Now, this is back in the days before the gals used to wear pantyhose, used to wear garter belts, you know, to pull their drawers down and hold their socks up. And when she was drinking, hers always trailed behind her uniform. She'd trip and fall and drop all them manicuring bottles. And, 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 and I'll tell you, the best way, I, she was a mess. Now, the best way I can describe Edith's looks is a drunk. You know, in our part of the country and also here in Mississippi, if your car is caught out in a hailstorm and it's pretty badly beaten up, right when you get your insurance check, if you have insurance, some wise buzzard says, Ah, oh, don't get it fixed. Let it sit out in the hot sun for about three or four weeks, and all the dents will pop back out. 
<laughs> Her dents never pop back out, but she is a great gal. Well, when Edith told me she hadn't had a drink of alcohol in a year, that got my attention. Because Edith had the reputation of being an incorrigible, mean, nasty woman fighting drunk. And she could outdrink any man any day, any week, any month, any year. She carried a big black purse. And it always had two pints of whiskey in that purse. And nobody could get in that purse. She'd kill you if you got in that purse. And here she was, and she said she was sober, and she hadn't had a drink in a year, and that got my attention. And so I began to watch her that morning. I noticed she changed all right. I noticed when she'd given me my manicure that morning, she was buffing my nails instead of my knuckles and my shoulders and my ears. I looked up at her face, and her lipstick was on her lips and not her eyebrows. And I smelled her, and she didn't smell halfway between an Avon woman and a whiskey bottle. But more important... She did not grab her purse and say, Now, I'll be back in ten minutes and maybe show up nine months later. But I noticed a real change, and the change was in her eyes. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we have two kinds of eyes. We have those sad, sick eyes. And then we have those happy, dancing, laughing, sparkling, living, sober eyes. Oh, we got another kind of eyes, you know, them glassy eyes. They'll get up behind one of these things and say, I haven't had a drink of alcohol, you know, and then fall over. But her eyes were sparkling, and they were jumping, and they were laughing, and she looked like she was having a lot of fun living sober. And then she turned to another manicurist in the same shop by the name of Moena, and she says, Moena here is my sponsor, and she has 15 months sober in this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, back in those days in Alcoholics Anonymous, and why to come to Alcoholics Anonymous, any time we talked about our sponsors or mentioned our sponsors, it was with reverence. Because we respected our sponsors. We literally turned our lives over to their care and direction as a result of their experiences. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we asked to share our experiences and not our opinions. Because we find as a result of our experiences in Alcoholics Anonymous that opinions in many, many instances have a tendency to make sick people sicker. And in some instances to physically kill people. We've been given a tremendous gift after the freedom, the gift of freedom from alcohol, and that's to be ourselves as we are. And tell the truth about ourselves in good taste. And I did not know this. Because you see, and I'm one of these today in Alcoholics Anonymous that firmly believes that sponsorship today in A is not what it used to be, not what it needs to be, not what it ought to be, and not what it should be. And I looked at Moena, and I drunk far more alcohol with Moena I ever did with Edith. And I said, Moena, you're a bigger liar than Goofy over here. I said, Moena, we had a drink not. She said, no, David, I have not had a drink of alcohol with you or myself or anyone else in 15 continuous months. Edith has not had a drink of alcohol in 12 continuous months. Little did I realize that those precious words that lady, fine lady, said to me that morning would stick with me for many years. Thank God she didn't say they belong to there where you come in and get sober and go out and get drunk, come in and get sober, go out and get drunk, come in and get sober, go out and get drunk, come in and sober, get on and get drunk. She talked about continuous sobriety. At that time, I did not know it was one day at a time. And then she said, David, we have an open meeting this Sunday at 5.30 in the afternoon. And it's open so the public can come and hear and see how an alcoholic recovers in the AA recovery program and how an alcoholic lives the AA way of life. But more important, what AA is and what AA is not. 
And believe it or not, the greatest challenge that we have within Alcoholics Anonymous right this very second, all over this vast world, that there are hundreds of thousands of our members today who do not know what Alcoholics Anonymous is not. That we're not all things for all people. The singleness of purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous has made Alcoholics Anonymous the envy of over 150-some-odd self-help groups in the world today. Long ago, AA found out that as long as it stuck to its and sticks to its primary purpose, the alcoholic in AA and the alcoholic who is to come has the only decent chance in this whole wide world of living sober. And AA today is perhaps the only free society left in the world today. There are no dues. There are no fees. No human being can punish another human being. In AA, we don't have to have human authority. That's the whole crux that AA works. We have two authorities in Alcoholics Anonymous, God as we understand him and alcohol as we understand him, and one heals and one kills. And we don't have to have any human authority running around here punishing people. God knows we punish our own selves enough. And I did not know this. And then she also said, although we do not give any awards or honors or medals for our sobriety, being that it is the last Sunday of the month, it is a tradition of their AA group that they have sort of a little birthday anniversary party for those who have one or more years of continuous sobriety. And she said, we would like for you and your wife, Grace, to come to that AA meeting and stay overward for that birthday party. And I thought that the only reason that people such as you would invite someone such as me to come to one of your AA meetings and stay to one of your AA functions is that you needed to have some good-looking, outstanding, and successful professional man come and upgrade you lepers in the community. And I'm glad to come help you. So I went home and told Grace and God she was thrilled because people had long since quit asking us to come around. Grace used to ask me, why didn't it we're not asked to the outdoor barbecues, square dances, round dances, card parties, domino parties, nightclub supper parties, swimming pool parties, pin the tail on a donkey, whatever drunks do on Saturday night. And I said, it's you, it's you. I said, every time we're asked to go out on Saturday night, you start on me on the Monday before, and you start screaming, you're not going to drink, you're not going to get drunk, are you? You wake me up out of a sound sleep, 5.30 the next morning, scream, did you hear what I said? <laughs> and you keep it up Tuesday, Tuesday night, Wednesday, Wednesday night, Thursday, Thursday night, Friday, Friday night. And what a tremendous price society has had to pay, is paying, and I guess will always pay. Those who love us, those who hate us, those who do not even care that we exist on this earth. What a tremendous price those people are paying to find out that the more you scream at our kind about our drinking, the more we're going to drink. And I said, and furthermore, when we get to where we're supposed to get to, before I can even park the car, you're out of the car. You run in, you grab the host and the hostess. You chase them out the kitchen, through the den, in the backyard, in the alley, in the bushes, in the garbage, in the neighborhood, screaming, don't you give him a drink. <laughs> Woman, you're sick. That's what's wrong with you. But through tear-filled eyes, she said, we're going to meeting, and I said, yes. And so that Sunday morning, I got up at 5.30 in the morning to get ready to go to an AA meeting, 5.30 in the afternoon. When I, what does a good self-respectful drinking drunk do when he gets up 5.30 on Sunday morning? Drinks alcohol, that's what he does. Let's face it, it's very simple. Golfers golf, fishmen fish, drunks drink. There's no big mystery. I started sucking on a brand new bottle of whiskey. You know what it is? You take that first drink, that gets your breathing started. Then that second drink regulates your breathing. 
Then that third drink goes down both heels and just sets you there. Now you're ready to do some real drinking, aren't you? And I'm drinking and I'm looking up at the birds and the bees and the trees and I'm hearing the neighbors screaming, Johnny, get dressed, we'll be late for church. And I said, oh, those sick people, they don't know what living really is. If they could just learn how to control it and enjoy it, like I was doing, that they would find out that right after breathing in and out, alcohol is the second greatest gift that God's given mankind. Amen. Took another drink. <laughs> Drank half of that fifth of that whiskey and put the other half to fifth in the trunk of my car because I knew I was going to be required to have another drink of alcohol. Maybe a minute later, ten minutes later, two hours, a minute later. And I didn't know the exact reason until I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, that until and unless that alcoholic is willing to find out what's wrong with that alcoholic, that alcoholic will never be able to find out what can get right with that alcoholic. And I went in and I bathed and I shaved and I put on everything rich and nice looking to impress those poor, sick people in Alcoholics Anonymous. Put on a beautiful, brand-new, tailor-made suit. White on white monogram shirt, monogram handkerchief, monogram tie, monogram drawers. Put on my diamond ring, my diamond watch, and the trademark of every good, self-respectful, high-rolling, drinking drunk, a brand-new pair of custom-made alligator shoes. I look just like a used car salesman. Or a dope dealer. And at 10.30 in the morning, I'm out with my long roadmaster Buick honking the horn. And out comes my wife with the rollers in her hair, and she has on It's That All Your Fault kimono that they just love to live in and dwell in and cry in and die in, to where she lost a string around the middle and is pinned together with a big baby diaper pin. And she's pulled all the threading and the padding and the buttons and the fuzzing off the front, and the front's just covered with tear stains and cigarette burns. It's what us drunks and Alcoholics Anonymous lovingly call the Al-Anon designer house coat. <laughs> and in a very kind, loving, wifely tone of voice, she screams out like a wild banshee, What do you want, you no-good, sorry drunk? And meanwhile, all the neighbors had gathered up. And her side is lined up over here, and my side is lined up over here. And I can still hear the fine ladies of the neighborhood saying, Isn't it a shame? that such a beautiful and fine lady and the mother of two beautiful little boys married to such a sorry, no-good drunk like him. And my bunch over here are hollering out, Let her have it, David, let her have it. <laughs> and that used to be the weekend entertainment in every neighborhood we lived in. We moved 24 times before we come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes at midnight, high noon, daybreak, ahead of the sheriff, sometimes with the sheriff, sometimes behind him. I said, let's go to the meeting. She said, it doesn't get started for seven more hours, you no good so-and-so. And with that, she turned on her heels and went back in the house. And that started seven tough hours because here it was Sunday. And I violated a very serious code in my drinking. I'm down to one bottle. And I done drank half of the fifth. Put the other half the fifth in the trunk. And I, so, and, and I knew if I called a bootlegger or if I called a taxi cab, I'd blow the deal because when I got out of the service the first time in 1947, the sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, Texas, tried to net me. They tried to net me in 48. They tried to net me in 49. They tried to net me in January of 50, and they thought they set the trap on the last Sunday of August of 50. So I found just enough to nurse me along. 
And finally, at 4.30, I honked the horn, his came, and off went. And we drove up to this A group and walked in, and it, and it must have been about 80 members of Alcoholics Anonymous and their wives and their kids and a poodle or two jumping up and down. And it looked like they were all smoking cigarettes and hugging and kissing and rubbing up against and scratching and laughing and screaming and hollering. And I stepped back and I looked at them crazy people and I said, by gosh, if they're alcoholic and they're having that much fun and not drinking alcohol, then they have to be on dope. <laughs> and they looked around, I saw them signs in the AA group and I said, my God, I'm in a kindergarten. And then I saw, but for the grace of God in my head, duck. Because I knew at that time that I was not living according to the dictates of God's will for a human being. And I'm one of these that firmly believes that if and when an alcoholic comes to us, even though many of us come to Alcoholics Anonymous without a full string of lights, deep down inside, every one of us know this. If there is a principle we never hear discussed in AA, or if ever, very, very, very seldom. And that is, every one of us were born human beings first. Every one of us were born human beings first. And when we're given the most precious gift of life, and we begin to breathe in and out, right there and then is the creation of formation and development of selfishness and self-centeredness. And from selfishness and self-centeredness, stems all of those defects of character, those defects that we refuse to recognize as moral, those defects that made our lives unmanageable, resentment, selfishness, dishonesty, and fear, and not one and telling another human being what's churning on the inside of us. And you pour alcohol into a human being like this one, who's restless and irritable and discontented, did not like discipline wanted to do what he wanted to do when he wanted to do it, and if he didn't do it when he wanted to do it, I'll kill you, run over you, or steal from you, or lie from you. And you pour alcohol into that, and it you turn into something in your mind that's really something. And you grow up quick. You, in your mind you do, but in your body and, and in your brain you're a midget. That's the problem with all of us. We come here to AA, we're all emotional and screwed up midgets of the emotions and the soul and the mind, and that's it. Physically, we, we grow. But the things that keep us together, no, no. But I had many years to go before I was to realize this. I certainly did. Because, you see, Alcoholics Anonymous does something that formalized, organized religion on a continuing basis is never be able to do it. Medicine has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Psychiatry has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Social services has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Human willpower has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Treatment modalities has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Government agencies has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Acupuncture has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Hypnosis has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Horoscopes has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Biorhythm charts has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Witch doctors has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Bump doctors has not, is not, will ever be able to do it. Because Alcoholics Anonymous reaches down in the very depths of a human being. That most precious thing that comes with each and every one of us birth. That little fine precious thing that after we get physically comfortable from the agent that forces us to come to Alcoholics Anonymous that silently but wonderfully says, Thank you, little alcoholic, for not taking a drink of alcohol today. Thank you, little alcoholic, for finding a way to have a reasonably good night's sleep. But more important, 
Thank you, little alcoholic, for finding a group of people who love you no matter what you have done, what you are doing, or what you ever will do. And that is where the great strength of Alcoholics Anonymous lies. One drunk talking to another. And you know, I've been, I've been chairing a big book for many, many years, and when they call it David's meeting, then I step aside. And everybody is allowed to talk, and it's a closed meeting for alcoholics only. And a fine, nice lady came in late one night, and you know, and after we get through the reading and all the stuff, then we start to share what we went through. And so it finally got to this lady, and she said, well, she says, I'm not an alcoholic, but I found out y'all had an AA meeting, and I come in here... But she said, if I drank alcohol, I have all the tendencies, then I would be an alcoholic. And I said, honey, if my mama would have had steel wheels, she'd have been a locomotive. (laughs) You see, when Bill was laying in the hospital, Bill was laying in the hospital after his schoolmate, who later became a friend and became his sponsor, Ebby. And after Bill had his hot flash, you know, where he's laying there, all of a sudden a cool breeze comes through the wind, he's up on a mountaintop, and he settles down, and the obsession to drink left him. Well, I'll tell you, if you drank that whiskey and took them signals like I did, I've been on thousands of mountaintops. I've flown from London to Hong Kong, unaided, I don't mind telling you. Faster than that clown that was flying in planes last night, I'll tell you. Upside down, sideways. I'm doing everything up in there, you know, yeah. And so as he laid there, then the idea came to Bill. Why wasn't it that alcoholics of his variety, why wasn't it that up until Ebby came to talk to him and he had this experience, why wasn't it that he couldn't stay sober? Then the idea came to Bill that Ebby was the first alcoholic who came to talk to and with him about Ebby's experiences and what he had found. Up to that time, only non-alcoholics were trying to hammer in the heads of the alcoholic, you shouldn't do this, you ought not do this, you better not do this. And when Dr. Bob got sober, professional people in Akron, business people, came up to Bob and said, Bob, what was it? that this layman said to you, here you are a man of science. You know everything about the human anatomy. You know everything about the emotions. You know everything about the blood supply, the brain, everything in this God's world. What did that uneducated layman said to you that got your attention? And Dr. Bob said that Bill was the first man who talked to him as a result of his own experiences. And that is where the great power of our society lies. One drunk talking to another. But I had many, many years before I lived there. And so after after I saw them signs, they blew a whistle, they hollered, and everybody went to the meeting. And I sat on the back row. I wanted to look them folks over and see what kind of help I could afford to give them. And the first talker got up there, and there was a woman, and I fell out of my chair. Because that's the lyingest, cheatingest person I'd ever been around in my life. And that woman had nerve enough to stand up in front of 80 people and say she's sober, sane, in her right mind, and hadn't had a drink of alcohol in a year. And I jumped up and I screamed out, you are a liar. And somebody said, shut up. <laughs> and you know how I went drunk, Angie, we'd tell them, shut up, make me. Well, they had enough in there to make me. 
And then that woman got to talking about her Jesus and got to talking about her Christ and her Jesus and her Christ and her Jesus and you got to be reborn. And I said to myself, what a heck of a trick to pull on the Jew. <laughs> they invited me that AA meeting to convert me. And if this, if this is what you people were, I needed a drink real bad. Now I'm asked all the time all over this world, how come there are not any more Jews and alcoholics and on what there is? And it's real simple. You see the way people have their noses fixed, their names changed, you don't know who you're sitting next to in the name is. And what difference does it make? You know, when I first come to you, I used to say I was an alcoholic Jew, but after 24 years of sobriety, today I'm just an alcoholic with Jewish tendencies. Your money still ain't safe around me, I'll tell you. And so as a result, you know, and I, I'm, and, 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 and I had to listen to that. Because, you see, I started drinking with, working with, get drunk with, fighting with, cheating with the black and white wino, which was in Skid Row at Skid Row today, and I guess it'll always be Skid Row in Dallas, Texas. And I started down there at ten and a half years old. And I started drinking bay rum and wine. That was a standard fare. And when I got down there, and I didn't have to be down there, I came from one of the finest families that God ever put on this earth. I had a mother and father that dedicated their two lives to give to the two sons that were born to that marriage everything that was denied them when they were growing up. And if one of the sons is going to become an alcoholic, I do not know of a better deal when you've got a mother and father that's willing to go to any and every length to keep you from hurting and to keep you from suffering and to keep you from bringing shame and disgrace on the family name and the heritage and the religion. And after I got sober in Alcoholics Anonymous and I wrote my four-step inventory and it come to them resentments. And I hated and I resented my mother and father because in the manner in which they treated me opposite to my brother. And after I looked at that inventory, in particular the resentment against mother and father, because you see, fourteen and a half years before I got sober, my father and father and the religion they were born in, lived in, died in, and very devout, they lit the candles of the dead and said the prayers of the dead for seven consecutive days. And on the eighth day, they said the final prayer of death, blew out the flame and the candle, and as far as they were concerned, they had no older son alive in their minds on this earth. I was dead. And that was the greatest thing in the world they could have done for them about me. That was total release. No longer could I go to them and beg and cry and whine. And that's what I was doing through life, chipping away people that are trying to help me. Till I got down to me and my problem and I couldn't handle my problem. And I didn't know all this was happening to you. And then when I looked at that inventory, I realized that up until the time my mother and father prayed me dead, for me, they were the worst parents that I could have ever possibly have had because they never allowed me to fall. They broke every fall. And yet I could not fault them because they were doing the best they knew how. The best they knew how. You betcha. And I started, as I said, down on Skid Row, started drinking bay rum, and I started drinking that bay rum and wine right there and then. My whole perspective in life changed right there. No longer was I interested in 14th century history. No, whether I in, no longer was I interested in arithmetic. No longer was I interested if George walked him through a silver dollar across the Potomac or the Pearl River. 
Uh-uh. Right there and then, I'm down there with them winos and them men, and I didn't have to have anybody tell me, brush your teeth and wash your ears and eat this and eat that and do this and do that. And, and, and there's old, many of you old enough to remember, on Saturday night when you took your hot bath, Mama would holler out, always spring cold water on your chest so you won't catch cold and all them good things. And now I could be down there, and here I'm growing up, drinking that wine. And so right there in my perspective in life, I wanted to be a wino and a bump. My mother and father would snatch me off of Skid Row and put me back into school. When I was 14, 15, 16, 17 years of age, I run off and joined Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. And that would have been a thrill in those days with the Ringling Show because it was the largest show under canvas in the entire world. And God, all those wild animals. And Tom Mix had the Wild West Show and his trick horse, Tony. And all them flying folks and everything else and them gorillas and tigers and elephants. Been a thrill. Not me. I went because you could drink and you could fight. And I look around here and I don't see any circus-looking drinkers. I learned the most beautiful concoction to drink in the circus that's ever been devised by a man called Green Lizard Circus Style. A tremendous drink. Elixir of sodium bromide and Lucky Tiger hair tonic. <laughs> and I used to drink that stuff and I'd see Bambi and them animals in Technicolor long before Walt Disney ever put them on screen. But I'm trying to live three codes of living in those days. I'm trying to live the code of living that society was demanding that I go to school and become a useful human being and be of service to my God and my family and my country and not end up in the jails and the goonie roofs and sleeping in alleys and bushes and over steam grates and in cardboard boxes. And then I'm trying to live the code of living my mother and father wanted me to live, and they had all the money. And if you had already been in all the trouble I had been in, was in, and getting ready to get into, it takes a lot of money to get you out so you can get back in it again. And then I'm trying to live the code of living that alcohol was demanding all my life and you're way ahead of me. And they've jerked me back from the circus and they put me back into school. And, and, and I went to Southern Methodist University and World War II was coming on. And I'm still down there on Skid Row and going to school and on Skid Row and not wanting to be there. And because when I went to the circus, my life perspective changed again. From just being a bum and a wino... I wanted to be tattooed from the top of my head down to my toes. And I wanted to roam the world and tame gorillas and lions and leopards, you know, and, and all those good things. And so finally I was going to World War II come along, and if you're going to professional school, why, they, you'd get an exemption until you got out of professional school. And so I go into professional school, still living down on Skid Row, and at the end of my freshman year in professional school, I flunk out of school. And I got home, got to go home and tell my mama. And I looked at my mama. She said, what happened? I said, well, the professors don't like our kind. They don't like me. And she said, they cannot do that to my boy. And when I heard that, I knew I would be back in school not later than two days later. And she turned to my daddy and she said, you get my boy back in school. And two days later, I was back in school. And so I went back in, and, I, and then, then I got to thinking. And that's the most dangerous thing for an alcoholic to do, drunk, sober, or dead. I got to thinking, well, if I got married, then I would have responsibilities as a husband. I wouldn't drink as much, and, and I'd make better grades. I'd met this wonderful gal, Grace. And we decided to get married. I said, now, wait a minute. Before we get married, we're gonna have, there are going to be certain conditions. She said, what's that? 
I said, your mother and father are going to have to pay half the living expenses. My mother and father are going to have to pay half the living expenses. And you go to work, and I'll go to school. Well, we were married under those conditions. Her parents paid half the living expenses. My parents paid half the living expenses. She went to work in a department store, and I went back to school and drank more. You don't have to do nothing. That's ideal for an alcoholic. No responsibility. And by hook or crook, I graduated. And then the United States Navy made a tremendous mistake. They declared me an officer and a gentleman. And they sent me in my new blue suit. And the first tour of duty wasn't too bad. I was on carriers and everything. Oh, I'd miss ship and do this. You have never lived and you, until you have been extremely drunk and unsteady of balance and you fall off the fantail of a battleship. <laughs> and it is in dry dock. <laughs> I got out of that, finally got out of that. And we come back. Dallas, and I opened up my first dental practice, making more money I ever had in my life. Putting the money in my right hand pocket, stealing it with my left hand, didn't keep no books, just stayed drunk and traveled all over everywhere. Because, you see, I was a stay-away-from-home kind of drunk. Not on purpose. No, I'd, 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 I'd get drunk, and I ended up with people I never saw before in my life. Countries I never knew existed on this earth. Whether without money, whether without clothes, they tell me I was gone one time 11 months. No, it's the same clothes I guess I had been in for about five months. And I asked my wife this brilliant question. Did anybody call? <laughs> and that does not make for good marriage relationship. One time I come home, I'd been gone, and I come home, and, and Grace is sleeping downstairs, and I start to go upstairs. She says, you can't go up there. I said, why? I'm going to my bed. She said, no, my girlfriend and her boyfriend, they're all up in them bedrooms and the kids, and, 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 and you're, you're going... I said, where am I going to sleep? She said, on the couch. And she had one of them day beds, only for one person, the kind that collapses, you know, and pulled up. And so I'm laying over on, on the couch, and I'm looking at my beautiful wife, and I have been gone for about nine months, and I missed her. <laughs> and I love her. And so I go over there, and I'm going to give her a loving embrace. Well, you know what a loving embrace, when a drunk is real drunk, it's more like a lurch. And she's hopped up out of bed. What are you doing? And I said, I just want to hug you and kiss you and tell you how much I love you. She run in the kitchen, and she got her favorite weapon, a butcher knife. And she's running me around in the dining room, and she caught me with my back to the dining room wall, and her backside was the dining room table, and there wasn't about that much distance between us, and she had that butcher knife. And every time I'd come forward, I'd run into the point of that knife, and every time I'd go back, she'd punch me with it, and I'm crawling along the wall trying to get away from her. And I had a pair of old boxer shorts with the elastic sprung out of them that kept dropping down, and she was peeling me with that knife like a pumpkin. <laughs> and I finally got away from her. And I run out of the kitchen in this apartment complex out the back door running down the driveway trying to hold them boxers up. And I'm screaming, you're not only frigid, you're a murderer. <laughs> and that, 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 that entertained the neighbors, I don't mind telling you. There's another saga in the life of David A. and Grace, you know. Yeah. And so, and, and so... Finally, you know, we started, and as I told you, in 1950, the drunks in Dallas tried to get me. And I went to that AA meeting, and I'm sitting there, because on Skid Row, if you drank that wine like I did, that wine will hang you without a rope. 
And long ago down there, if you hold, if you smoke or anything, both keep both hands free so you hit and run. I've always been five foot six. I was born five foot six. I drank that juice and I'd be seven foot tall. I've had hundreds of fights, never one of one. My nose has been where my navel is. My navel's been where I left here. I've been all rearranged. And also know this: all would never get up against a wall. Didn't have a back door or window you could jump out of. And here I'm sitting in an AA meeting, that woman talking about Christ. Them people standing up and looking at me every time I tried to go out there and said, shut up and sit here and this is for you. And there's no back door, there's no window. And I hated every member of Alcoholics Anonymous is in that meeting and, 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 and the horse and wagons that brought them across country. And I couldn't wait for that meeting is over with and everybody goes to the birthday party and ice cream. Not me. I went out to my car. I got that half-fifth whiskey. I don't know about anybody in this meeting or in AA. I drank that half-fifth down in two swallows. Now, that's the way I drank alcohol. I didn't put it in a brandy glass and run around and sniff it for four hours and burn candles and incense and listen to Lawrence Welk. I didn't put, a, a you know, an inch of whiskey in a glass, nine and a half ice cubes, 14 inches of soda water and a fruit and a cherry and a half a Christmas tree on top of it and suck on it for about three hours. To me, that's sick drinking. I drank her to drop her down that hole where it'll do the most good and put another one. But let me tell you what happened to me when I drank it. I quit perspiring. My hair laid back down. My toes went back in them alligator shoes. I ran up the steps. I got a hold of the oldest sober member in that group. Got to arguing with him about the quality of y'all's fellowship. And he said something to me and I hit him. And when I was drinking, I was bad to hit people. Taller than me, shorter than me, fatter than me, skittier than me. And two of his AA babies joined in and we started a fight. And as far as I was concerned, that fight was a lot better than that AA meeting. <laughs> because I was whipping the dickens out of them two little sober drunks. And then they did an unfair thing. They ran in two more the size of outside linebackers on any professional football team. And finally, four of them picked me up bodily, two on each side, and threw me right out of that A group. As I'm flying through the air, one of them said, We do not need your kind here. And another one said, And furthermore, you are too young to be an alcoholic. And that's exactly what I wanted to hear. And I stood on that grass that Sunday evening, drunk and belligerent, screaming and hollering and cursing with my fist clenched, that I would never come back to this Christ soul-saving organization as long as I live, that I was not an alcoholic. I was too young to be an alcoholic. But the next 17 years, everything that could possibly happen to a human being happened to this human being. And the only three things never to happen to me, getting ready to get on a drunk, on a drunk, coming off a drunk right to this very second, is I never did willfully murder another human being, fall in love with another man, or die drunk. Other than that, it all happened. Of course, I guess blackouts don't count. I really don't know. We don't want anybody leaving my A meeting with resentments. I don't want to tell you. <laughs> and so, you know, I told you I'd married this wonderful gal, Grace. And when we got married, we didn't start to build a marriage. We started to build a booby trap. One that could go off any week, month, or year. And I was recalled back in the service, and I went with a combat marine division, and I got into more trouble than there's trouble. And for one solid year, I ended up in a maximum security prison. It was under a code name. They only had room for 138. And the word was, when you got there, you would never leave. And I saw how some of them left. 
with sheets from the top of their head down to their toes. And here I had a leg iron locked around right leg, a chain welded leg iron, the other end the chain welded to steel, uh, to steel legs on the cot, and the steel legs in the cot immersed in concrete, and there are armed gorillas around me 24 hours a day, daring me to move. I laid like that for one solid year. And because of my insolence, and because of just being plain ugly and uncooperative, Ten and a half months of those twelve months, I was almost on straight bread and water. And it's Christmas Day, 54, and the orderly comes in with the Christmas dinner. And I've been in lots of places, they don't give you knives and forks and spoons, and if they give you a spoon, if they let you out of the iron doggy house, they count them for you going to, and you're not, not that place, you ate everything with your fingers. And they said it was soup, well it wasn't, it was dishwater. And you dream there's chicken in there, and there's onions, and there's carrots. And there's peas, you know. You almost go stark raving crazy. And resentments will keep you going a long time, but it'll warp your mind. And here this, he comes in with this Christmas mess. And he says, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. And I'm so full of Christmas spirit and love and joy for my fellow man. I said, ho, 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 you know what? He said, you know good son of a gun, here's your Christmas dinner. And I was so grateful, I picked it up and I hit him right in the face with it. And my Christmas gift for that Christmas was 45 more straight days on bread and water. Now, that's what you call a bad day. <laughs> I have not had a day that bad since I have been sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, and neither have you, compared to what? And I got out of it by lying and cheating, and some fine officers took their lives as a result of their involvement with me, and those were the first amends that I had to make. I talked grace into taking me back. And we decided to move out to the panhandle of West Texas to raise our two little boys in a Christian environment. Now, I don't know how many of y'all ever lived in a town in the panhandle of West Texas of 3,500 people who lived, in a, uh, who, who lived in a Christian environment. And that's a town that votes dry and drinks wet. And the two most popular people in the town is the undertaker and the bootlegger. And I'm drinking and I'm getting up to where every, I'm, I'm drinking every day. And I got up to where I weighed 245 pounds. And my blood pressure was so high that every time my pulse would beat, my hair would stand up and straight like oil well. Had a fat doctor friend, my drinking buddy, in the next town I go see him. He looks at me and he says, my God, you look sick. And he put the cuff around my arm, ran the air up. As he's letting it down, he says, David, it's a miracle you are alive. Your blood pressure is so high. And then he said, the reason your blood pressure is high is because you're so fat. And then he said, the reason you're so fat is because you eat so much. Well, that was not the truth. I was bloated. And he says, you do not have any guts and you do not have any willpower. I'm going to have to give you some help. And he wrote me a prescription for 60 of the most beautiful capsules I have ever seen in my life called Nemudons. And he says, take them as directed. And I said, doctor, is it all right if I drink a couple of beers while I take those things? He said, I do not believe it will hurt you. He never should have told me that. So I went home and I had the prescription filled. I went home to lose weight and stayed drunk. Well, I looked at the prescription. It says, take one three times a day after a meal. Well, who eats when you drink? And every good self-respectful drinking drunk knows if one's good, two's better, three's terrific. So I just took three of them, drank some whiskey. Didn't feel like I was losing any weight. Come back and took three more of them, drank some more whiskey. 
Went in the bathroom, turned sideways, looked in the mirror. Didn't look like I'd lose anyway. Come back out and took a handful of them, drank some more whiskey. Looked like my stomach's getting bigger. You know, our co-founder Bill wrote some very prophetic lines when he said, when a drunk is drinking, it's time out of mind. Time passes so slow and skinny. The only thing that I have found sad about Alcoholics Anonymous is that time passes so fast sober. Where does it go? And finally, I took all the pills and drank all the whiskey, and the next thing I knew, I was out in my backyard, and I was picking peaches off of rose bushes. I don't mind telling you. And they tell me I ran around that little town for two days talking in the unknown tongue, you know. And being one or two Jewish families in five counties around, I gathered everybody in to see and hear the miracle. Because word had spread like wildfire. The Jew had caught the Holy Ghost. And when I come to and realize what happened, I said, my gosh, those pills are messing up my drinking. You know, I'd drink and I'd terrorize the town. I'd ride around the town and out in the country into the cemetery. And I love country western music. And my favorite radio station in those days was Del Rio, Texas, where they sold Bibles and crosses and chains and rejuvenation powders and potions and lotions. And they sold everything under the sun. Get your Cupid dollar, Jesus. You can love him. You can hug him. You can kiss him. He's with you 365 days out of the year. And he glows in the dark, you know. And they used to play some of the finest country western tunes you ever heard. Don't wink them bloodshot eyes at me. And here's one that's good for 11 months of drinking and 14 months of crying. Only God made honky-tonk angels, you know. And all those fine. And we had to move away from that town. And we finally moved back to Dallas, and I had a wonderful opportunity. But I'm taking me with me, and it wasn't long before I'm back down on that skid row sleeping in them 55 cent night hotel rooms with your shoes tied around your neck. And everything near and dear gone. I went home once the last 11 months of drink. I walked in and Grace looked at me and she said to me, Do you have to do the things that you do? Do you have to drink and do the things you do? And I guess I told her the only honest truth from the time I was married up to that very second. I said, Grace, why don't you find another man that will marry you? You're such a fine lady. That'll be a good husband to you and a good father to those two little boys. I want to, but I can't stop drinking. I said, Grace, I'm going to die drunk. And with that, I grabbed my wine bottle and I walked out and I tried to proceed to kill myself. And somewhere along the line on April the 18th and 19th the 20th, 67, I found the handwriting on the floor of the county jail in Dallas, Texas. Now, I've been in lots of jails. And being in jail is not a requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous. But by this time, I got to the point in my life to where I couldn't stay sober and I couldn't stay drunk and I couldn't kill myself and I couldn't stay alive. And I didn't want me as we was, but me was going with me every place me went. And something happened in the jail. I said a very simple plea of help. I put no conditions on it. I didn't even say please. I just simply said, God, help me. 
And I know right this very second there is not only a God for me then, there is right this second because I'm still here and I have not had a drink of alcohol. And I said, if I ever get out of this jail, I'm going to look up those people in Alcoholics Anonymous. How I got by that old sheriff, I don't know. Because the next to the last time I was in this jail, as I was being let out, he said to me, Boy, if you ever show up my jail again for drinking and drunk and the things that you do, I will have you put away to where you'll never bother another human being, bird, tree, dog, or rock. Do you understand? I said, Yes, sir, Mr. Bell, I heard him so well. I went right down the steps, went out to the whiskey store, got me a bottle of wine, got out in the park with the rest of them pigeons and winos, and grinned, and I said, I beat him again. And how I got by him this time, I don't know. When I got out, I started looking for the members of AA. I found out that Edith, the gal who asked me to come to that first-year birthday party, she had passed away, but she was continuously sober when she passed away. Her sponsor, Moena, had moved to West Texas. After I was sober nine months, Moena moved back to Dallas. She became secretary of our group again. And then she went back to manicuring, and every Wednesday morning at 8 o'clock, I used to see Moena as my manicurist, and in March of 1936, Moena passed away. And if she would have lived two more months, she would have been 39 continuous years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a man at that meeting. He was sober eight years. He drank for eight years. Went back to drink. And this past May, he celebrated his 16th continuous sobriety this stretch. The only one I knew that was at that meeting or in AA. I called him up. And I said, W.O., are you still interested in Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, who is it for? I said, it is for me. He said, well, we have a meeting tomorrow night. Let's just go and get it over with. And don't you take a drink of alcohol today. And call me in the morning at 7.30. And boom, he hung up. That's all he said. And after 37 and a half years of giving it the best shot, it was cold turkey. Well, it's more like frozen buzzard, if you want to know the truth of the matter. I started walking and shaking out of drunk. 7.30 in the morning, I called him. He said, are you drinking alcohol? I says, no, sir. He said, don't you take a drink of alcohol today and call me at 3.30 this afternoon. Boom, and he hung up. And he started that walking, shaking. 3.30, I called him up. Are you drinking alcohol? I says, no, sir. He said, do you really want to go to an AA meeting or come to one? I said, more than anything else in this world. He said, do you want me to come get you? And being about as humble as Saddam Hussein, I said, I'll get there under my own steam. And he told me where it was. And boom, he hung up. Well, I was in a terrible predicament because all the clothes I would own was on me. And that was an old pair of thermal underwear, an old gray sweater with the elbows out the elbows, no socks, a pair of old beat-up flannel breeches with all my possessions in my pockets. Still hadn't quite lost everything. I had a pair of beat-up old alligator shoes. And the only money I had was 30 cents. And that was all left from the blast blood I'd sold to the blood bank to buy wine. And when one comes to A in that shape, one is not doing well. And here I am, a professional man. I can't go to AA looking like a dirty bum. And I'd heard that Grace had thrown out all my clothes. But I took a chance. I called her up. And she, I hadn't talked to her and heard me so long. She said, I said, Grace, she said, who is this? I said, me. She said, what does me want? I said, Grace, do you happen to have one of my old suits? She says, yes, I have one, and it is to bury you in. 
And I suppose she come to Al-Anon. And then I asked that woman the most foolish question ever asked her in my life. I said, do you mind if I borrow it for a little while? I'm going to an AA meeting. She said, another one of your lies and hung up. Well, she let me in her house. She's paying the bills and everything. And, and she let me in the house, and I put on that suit, that suit to store it itself. I bet she and the youngest one, goodbye, got into a Mustang that the bank was looking to repossess it, but they couldn't recognize it. It looked like an accordion. And off I went to the meeting. And I walked in, it looked like the same people that were there 17 years earlier. And one of them old hermits come up to me, and he looked down at me, and he grinned, and he said, We knew you'd be back. And now I'm going to tell you about the greatest day talk I've ever heard in my life. The greatest day talk I've ever heard in my life. Every member of Alcoholics Anonymous has heard it, and if your group has not told it to you, you have been cheated. Now, in AA, we don't have any speakers. We're just a bunch of talkers. Because ours is a language of the heart. And thank God it is not the language of the gutter. This fine member of AA looked at me, and he said these words. Welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee. We understand exactly how you feel. That is the greatest day talk I've ever heard in my life. He didn't say to me, you never should have done them things. He didn't say to me, if you really loved me, you would have done those things. No. Just simply said, welcome. Come in and sit down and have a cup of coffee, and let's talk about it. We understand exactly how you feel. That was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone shook my hand. That was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone invited me in. It was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone asked me to sit down and share anything with them. And certainly it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anyone said to me, we understand exactly how you feel. And when the meeting started, it was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking anyone allowed me to come and sit in a sane meeting with him. And I'm still shaking, and I'm still jumping, and I'm still scratching. And the drunks on either side of me, they got their hands on their knees and my elbows and my shoulders, and they're saying, easy does it. First things first. This too will pass. And then when they passed, the talking was over with, and they passed the collection around, and I didn't have any money, and, 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 and no one looked at me strange, and that's the first time that money had been passed in me in my last 17 years, and I didn't have any, I didn't reach in and take her all, you know. And then when that was over with, and everybody stood up to say the Lord's Prayer, and that was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking that anyone allowed me to stand and pray with them. And I did not know the Lord's Prayer. And no one called me an atheist, no one called me an agnostic, and no one called me an idiot, and no one called me a dummy. And after that was over with, that was the first time in the last 17 years of my drinking, those fine people came up to me and they hugged me and they kissed me and they told me how much they loved me for where I had been and what I had done and what I was right there that exact second. And then when I got ready to leave the meeting that night, those fine people said to me, David, please come back. We need you and you need us. Folks, that is Alcoholics Anonymous. Nothing more, nothing less. It's just God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous working in and through the sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous who were hugging and kissing and loving an alcoholic, dirty, who didn't care if he ever lived, who tried to kill himself and who thought life was over with. That is Alcoholics Anonymous. And when we change that, it is no longer Alcoholics Anonymous. 
When I got to you people, little I realized that my wife and two sons would ever be under one roof again because that marriage had been written off by everything and everybody and it had no right to be. But only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon in Grace's life. That beautiful and wonderful lady this past June the 10th, which incidentally is also A.A.'s birthday, Grace and I celebrated 48 years together and that's pretty good for a drunk. Although I was gone for many, many years. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you because I'm in AA and Grace is in Al-Anon that our marriage is absolutely perfect, that the butterflies are tranquil, that the bluebirds are hugging and kissing and cooing. Heck no. We have a few short rounds every now and then. We have a few long rounds every now and then. That's what you call clearing the air, communicating. And the best way I can describe our marriage today, it's built on solid, constructive imperfection because it's by our imperfections that we grow. Anyway, I go to six, seven, eight meetings a week. Grace goes four, five, out nine meetings a week. We don't see each other enough to have all that nitpicking, arguing, fighting, and fuss. But more important, I'm so thankful she stayed. Our two sons are grown today. Very successful. And I did not have anything in this God's world to do with it. I am so thankful that I married Grace. Because, you see, Grace was those two boys' mother. She was their father. She was their Santa Claus. She took them on picnics, and she took them to the Little League, and she took them to Cub Scouts, and later on to Boy Scouts. She took them on vacations. I wanted to. I wanted to. And I used to resent the fact how much they cared about their mother and had total disregard for me. Total disregard for me. And that oldest son, when he was 15 years of age, he had a butcher knife to my breastbone one Sunday morning. And he was going to kill me for what I was doing to their mother because their mother was the only link to sanity that those two youngsters had. And they couldn't stand to see what was happening to their mother. Her emotional distraught as a result of me. A man that she married and loved with every fiber of her being and seeing him completely go down the drain and she was helpless and powerless to do anything about it. And he had a butcher knife to my breastbone and he was going to kill me for what I was doing to their only link of sanity. And suddenly his wild eyes left. He dropped that butcher knife and he spat in my face. And he says, you're no longer my father and I'm no longer your son. And he walked out of my life. And I had no communication with him for many years, but only because of God's grace through the miracle of alcoholics now it's my life and only because of God's grace through the miracle of Al-Anon in the family life today. Thank God we not only have a tremendous father and son relationship, but more important, we're the best of friends. When I got sober, I had to go to the regulatory agency that regulates my license to practice a profession. And I had to go down there and tell them the truth, not make promises. Promises kill drunks. I had to go tell them what I did. They kept me down there for a week. They said, all right, you can go back to work. We'll be watching you one day at a time. Now, you've only heard the nicer parts of my story. And I'm asked by a lot of people, how did you ever get through school? You were gone. You were locked up. How did you ever get through school? Well, I was in my class valedictorian in high school. I finished second of a class of 450 at Southern Methodist University. 
I'm a graduate of Baylor University College of Dentistry. And they said, how'd you do it? Real simple. You cheat. It doesn't take our kind long to find another human being who will do for us what we cannot possibly do for ourselves. And so you see, only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a sober life today. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a God today, a God of my very own, a God that I found through the big book and the 12 steps and through you people from nowhere else. And only because of God's grace through the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have a family that loves and respects me. I have the best way to make a living that I have ever had in my life. I have a roof over my head. I have a few dollars in my pocket, a few dollars in the bank, not many. I have hundreds of thousands of friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, Al Non Altine, the world in which we all live in. I have two cars with gasoline in them, I hope. I have some reasonably nice clothes today. I have meat in the refrigerator and groceries in the pantry, and I'll tell you a little secret. If you want anything any more than that, you either oversexed or plum nuts. And this is not me. This is all Alcoholics Anonymous, because ours is not a personal success story, but one of colossal human failure, resulting in, as a result, the success and the alchemy of the living grace of God as it expressed through the recovery program of Alcoholics Anonymous and our fellowship there is. And y'all have been so kind and so nice. And some of you have heard this, but I think it fits very, very well in Alcoholics Anonymous. I wish our general service conference would reprint it and give it to every member of Alcoholics free, Anonymous free as a service piece. There's a letter that was written to our co-founder Bill on December the 30th, 1946. A letter written by a non-alcoholic who loved AA more than life itself. A non-alcoholic whose family name is perhaps the most famous family name as far as banking and financing and real estate and energy and oil and foundations and grants. A non-alcoholic, if it hadn't been for he and his non-alcoholic friends. There are some of us in AA firmly believe that our big book never been written, that Bill and Dr. Bob never would have gone off. And this letter was written to Bill by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. The letter is thanking him for a wartime printing of the Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where they had to cut the size down, but they never dropped anything out of the book due to the paper shortage in World War II. The first part of the letter is thanking Bill for the inscription on the flyleaf in that book, but this is a part of the letter I want to leave with you, quote to Bill. It must be of great satisfaction for you to realize that the helping hand that you extended to a needy brother many years ago has resulted in the widespread extension of that brotherly act. The regenerating power of the spirit of that helping hand has been the means by which countless lives have been saved that otherwise would have been wrecked. May God continue to bless you and use you ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. Every one of us in this meeting right this very second, we're here as a result of the extension of that friendly hand from Bill to Dr. Bob to Bill D. to right now. We are here as a result of the regenerating power of the Spirit. If there is a prayer, if there is a hope, if there is a desire that I have for all of us, may we continue to let God bless us 
and use us ever increasingly as his chosen instrument in the rebuilding of broken lives. And how will God continue to do this? And that is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. God bless each and every one, and thank you, and I love you so much. Oh, 